Hey, it's Drew. Before we start the show, I have a quick favor of you. We're running a listener survey. We're trying to incorporate feedback from you, dear listener, into Off the Books. If this is your first episode, if this is your 20th, please, please, please take a second and let us know what you think. Visit workiva.com slash podcast survey, all one word, W-O-R-K-I-V-A dot com slash podcast survey. Okay, here's the show. All right, all right, all right. What is up? And welcome to Off the Books, where we're surfing the uncharted waters of accounting, of finance, and wherever else those waves take us. Off the Books is brought to you by Workiva, the number one platform for SOX compliance, SEC reporting, internal audit management, and so many other fantastic things all in one spot. I'm Drew Dubner, and I'm your host. I am not an accountant, but I like asking questions of people who are, so finance professionals can do their jobs better. And today, guys, I have been really stoked for this episode. I've been waiting to talk to all of you as we get ready for Q3 earnings release season here in a a month or so. We've got Nick Mazing from Centio to get us up to speed on what we saw during Q2. And uh, Steve Soder is here too. And that's fine. I guess I have nothing against that. So Steve, I might have undersold you a little bit, but would you please oversell yourself to our audience at home? Well, I'm happy to be undersold, and I guess I've gotten used to it at this point, Drew. But notwithstanding, I am happy to be here. Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado, very much looking forward to debiting some market awareness as we chat with Nick today. Really looking forward to the conversation. If, if you're debiting, I'll take all the credit. Okay. <laughs> hey uh, Thanks for having me. My name is Nick Mazing. I'm the head of research at Centio in the New York City office. Centio is an AI-enabled corporate and financial research platform. Previously, I worked on the buy side in a long, short consumer. Worked at a family office. I worked at Lehman Brothers as an investment banker in consumer retail and worked on the corporate side at Aramark. Excellent. So that that kind of brings us up to our conversation today. Level setting here. So Centio deals largely uh, with earnings releases. And for the layman out there, earnings releases are all the juicy tidbits of public information that companies release to hopefully make their company so much more attractive to investors. To the naked eye, those reports in the form of press releases and 10Qs and that sort of thing are an impenetrable wall of text. It's just hard to read. But... Exclamation point, but people like Nick, who possess a crystal ball, can glean the nitty gritty, teeny tiny specifics from all of these reports and extract some global insight, which is basically magic. So, Nick, my first question, are you magic? My my wife would say no. And just as 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 a pro tip to all of your younger listeners, always agree with your wife. So, no. Uh, but I just have better tools than most, right? Most people use control F to search inside documents and we're beyond that. It helps me do more and see more in a dramatically shorter time frame. So given that you're unfortunately not magic, like many of the other guests we've had on the show, uh, tell us some of the things that you've noticed for, for Q2 of this weird and wacky year that we've all been a part of. Yeah, Q2 was very interesting because we saw a lot of acceleration of longer term trends. So I just, I'm just going to pick a few just to discuss 
So e-commerce had really good results. While obviously people were not going to stores, it pulled forward a lot of demand. So Shopify, which is a platform that enables e-commerce, their revenue is up almost 100%, right? So this is a, you know, think what is the end state? The end state is a lot fewer uh, bricks and mortar retail. We're, we got much closer to that much faster. Another topic is outdoor. Since if you recall in the last recession, staycations were a big deal. We're seeing a lot of interest in outdoors. So when you look at uh, Google searches for things like camping, RVs, and so on, uh, when you look at them, they're obviously very seasonal. They increase during the summer. This year, they're higher than ever in terms of people looking to do things outdoor. And you can see this in the earnings reports and, and press release and so on. Things, anything from gardening, camping, RVs, and, and so on. Uh, you know, it was, it was a sporting goods retailer with, you know, 30% plus same store sales, which is a huge, huge number. They took a hit on team sports because obviously back to school is very wacky, but the individual sports and firearms, which is a whole different conversation, were doing uh, really well. Another interesting trend is what's been happening with the malls. And, you know, is Amazon coming in and taking over most. What is interesting is Simon, which is the largest mall operator. They bought Brooks Brothers because, you know, Brooks Brothers has 250 stores, very good quality shirts and suits, except that there is zero demand for them in the, in the work from home environment. They also bought Lucky Jeans, which is a higher end uh, uh, denim brand, again, with authentic brands. But personally, uh, uh, if, if you can fold the space over, over, over the years, there is always something to save the malls. And that's probably not it, because talking to people who work in that space, uh, if Amazon takes over an anchor store like a JCPenney at a mall, there are floors in that space. So in other words, it is not suitable for a fulfillment warehouse, right? Are mall landlords buying retailers the answer? Probably not. Just like previously, you look at charter schools and churches and methadone clinics and all that. That didn't save the malls. Yeah. I mean, cities have been wondering what to do with malls for, for forever. There's not a good use for them. I'm not even sure that Amazon would be a good use for that because there's only one or two loading docks there. I think that might be a, you know, a infrastructural implication there. Well, but it's certainly got people talking. And, and Nick, I do have one slight correction. The demand for suits is actually zero plus one. Just to show you how out of touch I am, I actually bought a suit a couple of weeks ago and I am really excited about it. You probably I got a really like good deal on it. Well, I did. And I feel like my normal working from home, you know, shorts, flip flops, T-shirt, whatever. I like to dress up a little bit at the end of the day, you know, wow. kick back, relax. Warren Buffett over here wears shoes. <laughs> that, that, um, you're, you're, you're very optimistic well, because I'm sure you're depreciating your suit over, you know, the next three or four years and you think you'll be wearing it. And, you know, my math didn't work out on that. Absolutely. Well, I never, uh, I never turned down a, a tax deduction. That's for sure. So, Nick, I saw recently that you were quoted in the New York Times. It was the most interesting thing. You were making reference to a a make your own COVID risk indicator, which compared the share price of uh, share price ratio of Clorox to to Dave and Buster's. So, what in the world is that all about? I I found that very interesting. Yeah, that was that was pretty funny too. I mean, I started as a joke, but actually, it does work. Uh, so all, all I did is I I plotted the share price of Clorox divided by the share price of Dave and Buster's. And for the benefit of your listeners, Clorox 
obviously cleaning products, uh, including wipes. Corks has other products like birds, bees, but they're known for, for their cleaning products. Dave & Buster's is a uh, restaurant chain, but they're not just a regular restaurant chain. They're known for their arcade games. And people go to play there. About 80% of the profitability comes from the arcade games, which is extraordinarily high fixed cost, unlike a typical restaurant, which has a high variable cost, like labor and food and all that. Dave & Buster's is really a very high operating leverage, which is why they're very sensitive to their traffic. Well, obviously, their stock price dropped a lot in March, and I've been tracking uh, uh, that stock price ratio because if you think about it, you're plugging into this big brain, which is the stock market, and are people expecting better business for Clorox in the future, whatever the horizon is, or are they expecting people to be going back into restaurants, crowding, playing arcade games, usually at a corporate event or a birthday party or something like that, right? So if you think about COVID risk, right, you can be looking at whatever indicators you want, you know, like junk box press, whatever. But this thing I thought was a very simple kind of down-home, make-your-own indicator of is the market seeing big COVID risks or is the market seeing COVID risks going down? And when you look at it as a, it wasn't just a big spike in March. Since then, uh, Dave & Buster's was doing better up until June 8th when kind of the second wave started. And interestingly, when you look at the airline's ETF, Jets, its peak, its post-COVID peak was exactly on June 8th, right? Then Clorox was doing better as the second wave was going on. And then in, in the last week of August, when the $5 uh, 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 test from quick test from Abbott headlines came out, guess what? Dave & Buster's went up like 30% or something like that in that week, and it outperformed. So, so we're now going back towards the kind of the June 8th, uh, level where you know, okay, COVID is over. So that's that's it. But it's it's a very that's really fascinating, really easy to do. I mean, obviously, I've been in consumer. I'm sure there is other ways to express that. Maybe by looking at an airline with a lot of international flights versus a domestic airline, because maybe tourism and travel will recover faster than business travel or whatever, right? But you you get the idea. And that's what makes you such an interesting guest. Some people brew their own uh, beverages at home. You, on the other hand, brew your own uh, market indicators. So hats <laughs> off to you, my friend. And all of this indicates that we have to take a quick break for a commercial. So we'll be back in a hot jiffy. Today's episode is brought to you by Workiva. This week in quarantine, I'm Marie Kondoing the house and selling stuff on Craigslist. And, dear listener, is it ever a chore? You write a great, clear advertisement, and these dummies come back and ask a ton of really remarkably asinine questions. Does it work, they ask. Yep, says right there in the ad. It does. Is it broken, they ask. No, it is not. Please read the ad. Would you accept a toaster oven as a trade? No! Triple secret super no. Not a damn chance. You know... Other people can be so incredibly frustrating, but sometimes you just got to work with them. Same goes with accounting, finance, and risk. All of your 10Ks and 10Qs and compliance documentation and all that other stuff doesn't live in a vacuum. You've got to work with others to make them. And that's where Workiva can help. Work collaboratively and simultaneously on spreadsheets and board presentations and documents. Leave comments for people. Send a stack of review reminder emails in a single click. It's amazing. Workiva, it makes working as a team easy and cuts back on the clutter that does not spark joy. Yes, Workiva, check it out. That's Workiva, W-O-R-K-I-V-A.com slash podcast. 
And welcome back. Hey, Nick, you know, it, it dawned on me, I didn't really give you an opportunity to, to tell the audience what you do at Centio and what Centio really does. So could you give us a quick descriptor of, of all that? Yeah, we're, we're a, a research platform. Uh, we're known for our search technology. So things like synonym search and proximity and things, uh, redlining, which is comparison of document versions and so on. I'm the head of research. I work on things such as the synonym search. So when you think about things like uh, when you search for CEO, does it pick up chief executive officer? Uh, when you search for guidance, does it pick up language such as we expect or will continue? Right. So it's a, a synonym search is a very much a productivity tool in that sense. We have a most people when they think about search, they think about language search. We also have a number search. So you can find, uh, let's say, sales growth when it's mentioned within a certain distance of a percentage. Not that just any mention of sales growth, and uh, so it's it's uh, it's it's pretty complex. Uh, and I do just classic topical research for for things like white papers, and I work on our media requests too, which is how I ended up in the uh, New York Times recently. So basically, you do everything. <laughs> it's part for the course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I for my part, I've spent some time in Centio's platform, and I can tell you there is very little that they don't do. So, Nick, it's it's really hard to find anything that's making waves uh, in the markets right now that isn't at least somewhat related to COVID. But I stumbled across a couple of, of threads here that maybe aren't immediately related, or at least not apparently so. So I've got a few of them here I want to ask you about. The first is Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, of course, recognized a uh, highly publicized write-down you know, the SEC had had quizzed them on on Kraft Heinz and possible permanent impairment last year. They came back and said, "No, everything's fine." And then, lo and behold, they took a big write down. What what's going on there? So uh, Warren Buffett obviously is very closely tracked in the investment world. But the the first thing that we should note is that he now has people working for him, uh, Todd and Ted, who do a lot of the investment decisions. So when we look at uh, some of those things. We don't know whether it's Warren or whether it's one of his guys, right? So uh, last year, if, if, like, 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 like you recall, Berkshire filed their correspondence with the SEC and they were quizzing them regarding the discrepancy between the market value of their stake in Kraft Heinz versus what they had on the book because the market value was around $3 billion lower. And uh, there was a pretty nicely worded letter from the uh, Berkshire's uh, uh, CFO saying, you know, we don't think it's a permanent impairment. We can hold you know, to maturity with all the all the standards cited and so on, uh, and they actually did confirm that in their latest thank you that they're you know don't think this is a permanent impairment. The stock price in Kraft Heinz is 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 flat and it's down quite a bit because Warren has been holding it for a while because he was before Kraft merged with Heinz, he was in Heinz and so on, ended up holding his stake. I uh, I'm, think they're the largest holder with around thirty percent of that company. But what they did do a write down on was their largest recent acquisition in, I think they acquired in 2016, of Precision Cast Parts. And uh, this uh, Precision Cast Parts is a aircraft parts provider. And it was one of those things where historically airlines have never made money, but supplies to airlines have been making money because they essentially, if something happens to your car, let's say you need a belt replacement, you can buy any belt, broadly speaking. That doesn't happen in airlines. So the markup on replacement parts, because their OEM is very high, it was considered a very good business, essentially an annuity because you're, you know, airlines are flying, things are getting worn out with every 
you know, 10,000 hours, you have to replace some bearing or, or something like that. Great business, and which is why he bought it. He also bought some airlines, or one of his people bought some airlines. And what happened this year is uh, they recognized a uh, $10 billion write-down on precision cast parts. They also sold out of their airline stocks. And to me, to me it seems like Berkshire is negative on the future of air travel. That's what it says to me when you combine those two, where they exited the airlines that they owned, and they took that write down on the on the airline part of business. Yeah, really interesting. A lot of moving parts there. So the other thing I wanted to ask about was just e-commerce generally, um, and of course, a lot of people would point directly to COVID, but but e-commerce was expanding gradually anyway, and now we saw these enormous explosions: Etsy, Wayfair, Overstock. It seems like there's years of demand coming forward, but I just for wonder sure. what does that mean for you know retail generally, and maybe what does that mean for brick and mortar? We talked a little bit about that, but oh, what does it mean for e-commerce yeah. retailers? I think you can view retail as a zero-sum game because you're not. It is not a. It is not include e-com and bricks and mortar. So if you have Ecom growing double and triple digits, like we saw with Wayfair, Overstock, and all that. This is, you know, when when you buy a, a work desk from Wayfair, you're not buying it from the local store, right? Or if you buy something from Amazon, you're not buying it from a local store. So I, I think we're going to see a bricks and mortar retail shrinking as a share, right? As there's nothing insightful about that, and you know there will, there will be some winners where they can do uh, maybe Walmart. Uh, maybe Target, where they can uh, blend the in-store experience with local deliveries, you know, grocery pickup and so on. But overall, it is very hard to be bullish on bricks and mortar retail. You know, that kind of reminds me that Amazon purchased, I think they outright purchased uh, Whole Foods a couple of years ago. And when that happened, I was like, oh man, they're going to use this as their vehicle to start doing grocery delivery. You're seeing uh, several interesting plays there. Uh, the one I'm watching is Kroger has a partnership with Ocado, which is a robotics company, but they trade in the UK. They're fairly sizable because the profitability of grocery delivery right now is negative. Because what is happening, if they, they basically have to charge because what is happening is traditionally you do all the work. You drive to the store, you buy the stuff, they have end-cap displays, so you get tempted to buy the stuff that looks like it's on sale but really isn't, or, you know, the crackers are on sale but the cheese isn't, so you buy both and, you know, they end up making money, and then you wait in line, and then you go out and you go home. Now, what happens with grocery delivery is somebody else does all this, right? So there is an additional cost associated with that. And, and you have several layers there because are, are these people contractors, gig workers, right? That's another whole different discussion regarding classification of employees, which which I think is very interesting from a from a reporting perspective, given what just happened with with Uber and Lyft in California, right? But it remains to be seen whether the transition from you doing it versus somebody else doing it for you is going to happen in any sizable. Uh, away. I personally like looking at my food and touching it, but that's me. I try not to extrapolate. <laughs> well, and, and and it's interesting even thinking about my my experience where I actually enjoy going to the grocery store and that's maybe not quite the best experience, but you know, something <laughs> that I look forward to. My willingness to consider uh, grocery delivery, especially for products where I pretty much know what I'm going to get. I don't have to see it, touch it. Yeah, my willingness to do that has increased pretty dramatically as a result of this. Um, 
so it, it, it's interesting to see how that behavior, again, speaking for myself, has has evolved. And, um, and, and oh, go ahead. You can generalize that because established brands in grocery did really well. Uh, what happened with the supply chain disruptions and so on, if, if you look at what Jerome Mills and Kellogg and, and all those players said, they were kind of under attack by smaller brands. Well, now supermarket chains said, who can actually supply? So they, they use this to reduce SKUs, do big production runs of well-known brands, no coupons, no sales, nothing like that. This is like, this is on the shelf. Mondelez said that they're going to reduce SKUs by 25% which is a shockwave in, in that world, right? Because usually companies over time, they have SQ proliferation, right? Oh, you know, here is your Oreo and here is your 100 calorie pack and here is your uh, uh, club channel pack at Costco, which is 10,000 calories, right? And, and so on, right? That is all going away. That is all shrinking. Well, as long as Mondelez doesn't take 25% of the, the middle part out of the Oreo, then I, I, I guess I'll That's be okay. Yeah, I'm looking forward the... to the quadruple stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> the quad stuff. <laughs> Oops, all um, I think. So, so Nick, I, I've I've recently spent some time with Sharon Watkins, uh, Enron whistleblower. This was for a a separate thing that we've been doing for the SEC and Sox professionals groups. But um, had had noticed that whistleblower complaints to the SEC were up thirty five percent since mid March, and that astounded me a little bit. I would assume that people would be too busy to do any whistleblowing activities, but clearly that's not the case. What's going on there? Uh, that, that's a good question. And, and you know, obviously the, the whistleblower program has been around for 10 years. It's very well established. And when you look at their annual reports, which come out, I think, October, November, in the last few years, you haven't really seen that kind of growth. What I saw as an opinion is that people working from home combined with maybe a pay cut or something like this may have actually increased the incentives for people to submit signals, whether whether that is uh, justified or not. In general, you know, the program is considered successful because they get thousands of submissions every year. But the reality is, if the government says we're going to be writing checks, they're going to get, you know, submissions. That's just that's just the reality of it. Oh yeah, and and those financial rewards potentially um, they are not small. I mean, we've seen multiple announcements recently of multi-million dollar awards going to whistleblowers. That's got to be very compelling for some people. Oh, I would imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah, so, do you think the fact that people are working from home without the, you know, the scrutiny, the oversight, this draconian boss behind them, uh, gives them more wherewithal to actually report these sort of things? Is that kind of what one of the things I, that you're I mean, saying? There? I, I think that's how people work. Like, 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 why is there, you know, Bibles in the hotels? It's because people are more likely to do stuff, you know, that is regrettable in the long term. You know, when, when <laughs> you know, they're not monitored, right? So, so you know, you know that saying, integrity is what you do when nobody's watching. Well, <laughs> you're, you know, you want to avoid that sort of environment, right? That makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Leave that Bible alone. Don't touch it, Steve. <laughs> Well, I haven't been in a hotel in months, so oh, for the foreseeable that future, that will not be a problem. <laughs> well, that kind of brings us to the closing question of the day. So one of the common threads of this conversation is online retail. It's an understatement that we've all been around computers way too much at work, 
on the couch, you're on your tablet. Late at night, you're on your phone. And, you know, perhaps you've been a little itchy on that buy now trigger finger on that Instagram ad or, you know, something on Amazon. So next, Steve, what was the best online impulse purchase you've made recently? So my wife has the Amazon account and I'm kind of towards the opposite of the impulse buyer. Like it may take me like 30 minutes to buy socks, right? Uh, but but I do impose by domain names. So uh, this week, actually, <laughs> there is a, there is a local politician here in New York City that I dislike, and I checked uh, uh, kind of the next election, and I bought that politician's name with with 2022, just so that you know <laughs> if I if, if I feel like it, I'm I may start awesome. I may start uh, uh, just posting news articles regarding that. I, I'm floored so of all the things. I love you, it. Of all the things you could have said. Uh, wow. Well, well done. I can't even remember. Oh, okay. Right now I remember. So, other than my Big Bird lunch pail that I used to bring to the Off the Book Studios, of course I'm not doing that anymore. I've got a couple. So I found a vegetable peeler um, that I bought online. In frustration of the old one that we had, I just went you know, straight to my account. I bought it. And then I also bought a Sonic Alert loud vibrating alarm clock, which oh. might sound a little extreme, but that when I extreme. use the alarm on my phone, well, it's it's this nice kind of like sweet sounding soft music. And it just never occurred to me that that would be very good at waking somebody up. This baby, you shove it under your pillow and it like vibrates you and the bed and anything else. And that puppy wakes you up. So... Two good re- uh, impulse buys. Damn, I love it. Well, I'm going to go add those to my my Amazon wish list. You guys can buy them for me. Or you can, dear listener. I'm Drew Dubner. This has been Off the Books. Please subscribe, leave a review, or tell your buddies if you like the show. Surf's up, and we'll see you on the next wave. <laughs> <laughs>